0: As most of you guys know, we've been traveling through the book of Romans, so we've made it to chapter four, only 11 more chapters to go, 12 more, I don't know, a few more to go, so we're almost there, Um, and the first three chapters have primarily been dealing with and laying out the universal sinfulness of every single person in the entire world who has ever lived in all times. It's pretty cheery, it's a pretty good time, Um, but last week we were able to talk through and discuss the good news. And the reason why he starts with the first three chapters is we'll never, uh, as being like all the bad news, is we'll never truly under, understand the good news if we first don't understand the bad news. So he first explains the bad news in very vivid detail, and then he starts to explain the good news, that you and I, we are saved by grace through faith. And it's not by our own works, it's not by our own effort, because in fact all of us are deficient in every way possible, so that we, we couldn't save ourselves. So instead, God had to save us by grace through faith. And then he transitions now into chapter four. And the natural question is, where did this come from? <laughs> I, I've read the Old Testament. I've looked through the Old Testament. And was this like in God's mind the whole time? Because it sure seemed like there was a lot of crazy stuff that happened in the Old Testament. <laughs> That's a good natural question of where was this found? And, and also the, the natural question is in following also is... What does faith actually look like? Because it says you're saved by grace through faith. And so the through faith part is really important. (laughs) If that's the only thing that really is on our side, you could say is that we have to believe if we had one job, right? We better know that really well. And so what chapter four does is it, it, it grounds us In the Old Testament to show us that this isn't a new idea that God came up with, but it's in fact been God's steady pattern throughout his entire dealings with his people is that he saves them by faith and by grace, not by their own works. And then he also shows us really what faith actually looks like. So the first few verses talk about the history of faith. And then after that, it talks about the inclusivity of faith. And then finally, he closes out the chapter with the stability of faith. So first the history of faith in the first few verses. So look with me at chapter four, verse one. What shall, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So the first few verses, this shows the history of faith. That throughout the Old Testament, God has been dealing with his people in the same way that he deals with us now. That he responds to faith, and it's by his grace. And he uses two different examples. The first is Abraham, and the second one is David. So the story of Abraham, he's known as the father of faith. In the Old Testament, you read about him in the book of Genesis. He first comes onto the scene in Genesis chapter 12. And God comes to him, and he says, get up, get out of your country, and I will make of you, your, your descendants will become great many nations and from you all people will be blessed. And so he gets up and he leaves and then a couple chapters later God makes a covenant with him and he says look up to the stars in the heavens. See how many stars there are? That's how many children you're going to have. Says so uh, all the grains of the sand on the seashore, that's how many children you're going to have. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And at that point when he was promised he was 75 years old. And then the fulfillment didn't come until 25 years later when he was 100 years old. And it says that when he was taken out by God to go and look at the stars in the heavens, and God said, see all these stars you are going to have as many descendants as the stars in the sky. It says that he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. There in Genesis chapter 15. It says that he believed God and has accounted him as righteousness. It was the belief in God that was the foundation of his relationship to God. It wasn't based upon his obedience to the law. And how we know that is because Abraham existed prior to the law being given. The law didn't come until one of Abraham's descendants, Moses, over 400 years later, was received the law from God on Mount Sinai. And so prior to the law being given... Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's the first example he gives. Second example is David. We talked about David a few weeks ago. David, he also says in the book of Psalms is what's quoted right here. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Abraham shows us that we're accepted by God, not by our performance to the law because he was saved He was declared righteous before the law. David shows us that we're accepted by God even if we're sinners, even if we've made mistakes, even if we've done wrong things. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And we saw David a few weeks ago committing adultery, murdering the husband, covering it up, abusing his power, all kinds of different terrible things. Yet even David, as sinful as he was, had his sins covered by God because it's not the performance of the individual that determines their relationship towards God, but it is, is instead established by faith and only because of God's grace. And this helps us to unlock the key to the Old Testament Oftentimes, if you're like me, you can look at the Old Testament as a great big puzzle that needs to be solved or it's just locked up and you need a key to be able to unlock it because it seems so distant. It seems so foreign. How do we even deal with the Old Testament sometimes? And the way to unlock the Old Testament is to is to look for not the performance of the individuals. Instead, it's the faith of the individuals and God's faithfulness to the individual's. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it goes through a bunch of different of of, a bunch of different main characters found in the Old Testament. Goes through Abraham, goes through David, it goes through Isaac, it goes through Joseph, it goes through Samson, it goes through all kinds of different big characters in the Old Testament. And it says, by faith, they overcame, by faith, they waited for the promise, by faith. They defeated the enemy. By faith, they did all of these things. Over and over again, what we need to take from the Old Testament is that these were not figures of moral performance, but instead they were figures of those who simply believed in God. And God was faithful to them. If we look at the Old Testament as a bunch of heroes who did a bunch of really awesome things, and they ought to be emulated in what they did, we're going to end up in some really weird places. (laughs) There's polygamy, there's murder, there's all kinds of crazy stuff. Instead, we look at the Old Testament as God being faithful to people who were sinners, who didn't know the law, yet he was faithful to them. So this has been God's consistent pattern throughout the Old Testament, that he responds with grace to those who believe in him. And then the question is, okay, so that's been his... M.O. throughout the Old Testament, is this just for the Israelites or is it also for other people too? Is it just for the Israelites? Is it just for the Jew? Or does that actually translate to all people? Does God function in the same way where he responds with grace to those who believe? Verse 9, Paul answers this question. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or for the Jew or also for the uncircumcised, which is the Gentile, anyone who's not a Jew? And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So again, he shows that Abraham he was declared righteous. He was um, he believed God and was counted as righteous before he was circumcised, before he became a Jew, technically in that sense. And so, therefore, he's the father of all people who believe. In verse thirteen, for the promise to Abraham is his. The relationship with God goes to those who are not just Jewish, but also those who are Gentile. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So this shows, that was a really long explanation, that anybody who believes in Jesus can be saved. It doesn't matter what race, it doesn't matter what ethnicity, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter where you came from. Every single person who believes in Jesus can be declared righteous. This is the inclusivity of faith that anybody can believe. Anybody. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter where they've done what, what they've done or where they've come from, they can believe. But one of the problems that most people have with Christianity is that they say Christianity is too exclusive. That they view themselves as being so superior to everybody else and judging everybody else in the entire world to be wrong, that's so exclusive. That people have to believe in Jesus alone to be saved, that's too exclusive. It's too um, restrictive. And I just can't believe in Christianity because Christianity is too exclusive. And I came up to this or, or kind of experienced this even just this last week. This last week I was down in uh, down in California at what was called the California Grocers Association for my job. So I was there from Saturday to last night. So I just got back. And um, what it was, what California Grocers Association is, the CGA, is it, it's a time for all of the California grocery chains to get together, talk about the state of the grocery industry in California, like supply chain and like all kinds of stuff that's going on. And then it's also time for suppliers like me, uh, who supply things to them, uh, to get together and talk to them, show them our new products and explain like the future of our businesses together. And so it's primarily like the main leadership of these companies that get together to talk about this. And so in the middle of all these meetings, you also then go and have a big session with everyone together and they bring in speakers from around the country that are there to kind of inspire the leadership of these grocery companies to, uh, Like lead well and to keep moving forward and stuff like that So one of the speakers was a guy who like rafted through the like Alaskan Arctic Stuff and traveled around Mongolia and just all kinds of stuff. But then this other guy, which I thought was really fascinating uh, he was one of the main marketers at a Variety of different companies like Mondelez and Kraft and stuff like that. And so he was talking about his different marketing strategies and stuff and he was the one who designed this one marketing campaign uh, for Honey Graham Crackers. You guys know Honey Made Graham Crackers, right? <laughs> Classic, s'mores, the whole thing. Um, they they did one about um, like family wellness was this marketing campaign. And he, they ran this commercial. And so he showed us the commercial and the aftermath of the commercial and everything like that. And here's what the commercial was, is it showed a bunch of different uh, interactions like like family interactions of people like uh, roasting s'mores and hanging out together snacking you know the classic commercials and in the middle of it then there was also a homosexual couple a gay couple who were uh, taking care of a, the, the baby and, and it was all these different family shots and that one was in the middle of them and and then uh, after the commercial played it showed kind of the aftermath of it and like Forbes and Progressive Grocer and all these different publications. Mm-hmm were like just celebrating this, this next iteration of what the family ought to look like and celebrating honey made for it. In response to that commercial though, they also received a lot of flack. They received a lot of negative press of people saying, and this was one of the quotes that came up, that they were trying to normalize sin is what came up on there. And so they got all of these Messages on Facebook and through email and things to HoneyMade, and what they did and what this guy had had his company do is they took all of them they printed out these pieces of paper and they rolled the piece of paper up and stood them up like this and then they put them all together in order to start drawing something out on the floor and they drew out love and the line the line was we turned all of that hate into love And after that little part ended, the entire crowd that I was sitting in started applauding. So excited about it. And in that moment, that was one of the first moments that I I really felt out of place. And that people wouldn't understand me. And I looked over at my dad, we were sitting like six feet apart because all of the chairs are spread out. And I look over at him, we have our masks on and look over at him and we just both give each other a look and we're like the only two not clapping, sitting in this auditorium of all of these business leaders. They turn hate into love. And even though they got all those negative responses, there were 10 times the amount of positive responses to that commercial. And what this shows to me is first, That the heart behind this idea of being inclusive, the heart is really good. What is the heart behind people wanting to be inclusive and having everyone come together? We want to have peace. We don't want to have conflict with everybody. We want everyone to get along and we don't want to have all of these different arguments and disagreements and all these kinds of different things. We want everyone to get along. And so what our culture says is everyone needs to find their own way. You just got to find your own way, and I'm not going to tell you what you should do. You don't tell me what I should do. We're all just going to find our own way, and there is no objective standard for all of us to adhere to, but instead, everyone just needs to find their own way, and that's the best way for us to have peace in our time, (laughs) to have no conflict with each other. That's the best way for us to do this, and so that's what we really need to have, and the heart behind that I think is really good. All, all of us talk with our friends and our neighbors who believe this way and what their heart is Is we don't want people to be fighting and to be exclusive and all this kinds of stuff We don't want any of that and so instead we want everyone just find your own way And there won't be any conflict if we just let everyone find their own way and we just forget about it That heart Of wanting to have peace is is a good heart And so What we need to do is evaluate Which belief system really brings about true peace? Really brings about genuine harmony between each other? And how does it cause you to treat those who disagree with you? That's the real question. How does it cause people to treat those who disagree with you? I'm getting a lot of this from a guy named Tim Keller. He's my hero. (laughs) Listen to him. Um, How does it cause us to treat those who are different from us? And when we look at the statement everyone just has to find their own way and everyone's just got to do their own thing. How does that cause a person to treat someone who says, no, I I believe that there is a right way to do something, that I do believe in God, that I do believe in a certain way in which the family should function. I do believe that everyone ought to believe in a a certain way. How does that belief that everyone ought to find their own way caused the person to treat the person who says, no, like I'm a Christian or no, I'm a Muslim or no, I am a a, Judaism, any of the monotheistic religions, how does that treatment go? At best, it's, it's patronizing, it's kind of how I felt sitting there in the crowd. It's like, oh, well, you just haven't quite made it there yet. You still have these cute old beliefs that that are pretty, that's pretty nice. It's kind of patronizing. Or at worst, I'm a hater. And I hate all of these people. So that belief that everyone ought to find their own way actually leads to just as much conflict as anything else. So what does the gospel lead to? What What do we as Christians believe and how does that cause us to treat those who are different from us or who believe differently from us what the gospel says as we've read over and over again is that we're saved by grace through faith not by our moral performance and in fact in first corinthians it says that you were really not <laughs> that we were all really weren't very good or strong or wise or smart at the end of first corinthians chapter one in spite of those things you became christians so what does that mean If there's someone who believes differently from from us, we shouldn't be surprised if they're actually better people than us. Because we weren't saved because we're better people. They might be more disciplined. They might be smarter. They might be more kind. And that's not surprising at all. Because we're not saved by our moral performance. We're saved by grace. So what that does is it causes us to look at people who aren't Christians, who don't believe the way we do. We're actually humbled before them, Because I'm not saved because I'm any better than them. I'm saved because I have admitted that I can't do it on my own. And that causes me to love and respect and be humbled before those who don't believe the way that we do. And not only that, it doesn't just humble us, it causes us to be able to forgive those who might wrong us. The best example, again, I stole this from Tim Keller that I could think of, was in 2006, there was a, uh, there was a Amish school in Pennsylvania. By anyone's standards, the Amish are exclusive. <laughs> yeah. By anyone's standards, the Amish are fundamentalists. By anyone's standard, they have a certain way to do things. And at this Amish school in 2006, there was a shooter that came in and shot. They, he took hostage 13, six to 13-year-old girls and shot six of them, and many of them died, and it was a school shooting in Pennsylvania in 2006. In that event, one of the girls stood up and said, shoot me and let everyone else go. Afterwards, multiple parents came forward The day of, and said, we forgive him and and the family. The day of, they took up a collection for the family because the shooter committed suicide. Took up a collection for the family and gave them money. And in the subsequent weeks, parents came to that family and comforted them for the loss of their child. The Amish are about as fundamentalist as you can get and as exclusive as you can get. But what mattered was what their fundamental was. What caused them to have that belief, what was at the very basic basis of their belief, was a man dying on the cross for his enemies. When that's our fundamental, when that's our foundation, it causes us to forgive those who might wrong us. Or who might think differently from us. Or who might hurt us. Because that's our fundamental. The reality is, is every single person in the entire world has a set of beliefs and all of them are exclusive in some way. If you believe that everyone has to find their own way, that is a belief statement about spiritual reality that is very Western and exclusive to basically the Western US and excludes the majority of world history and the majority of the planet at large right now. It's an exclusive claim too. What matters is what does your fundamental do? What does your exclusive claim do? And the Christian gospel causes us to live in peace and forgiveness to the people around us. So even if that doesn't prove Christianity, it should at least cause us all to want Christianity to be true because of what it does. So that's the history of faith and then the inclusivity of faith, but finally the stability of faith. You might be saying, okay, Stephen, I hear you. I want that to be true. But my faith is so wishy-washy. It's sometimes here, sometimes gone. My faith is all over the place, or I don't believe at all. How do I, A, have a more stable faith, or B, how do I actually believe in Jesus at all to believe in this? So, chapter 4, verse 18, it says, In hope he believed against hope, he being Abraham, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he was told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith, but he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. (laughs) Imagine, that's incredible faith. No belief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but... He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the stability of faith. First, I want to say when we're thinking about faith, it's okay to consider and to think and to reason and to deal with the doubt. It's said twice here that he says he considered the deadness of his own body and the barrenness of his wife's womb. He considered the problems at hand. (laughs) He recognized that there were some difficulties and there were some problems and there were some obstacles that he needed, that somehow needed to be overcome. And so oftentimes when we're thinking about faith, sometimes the response is, yeah, just leave doubts there, leave it all behind and just believe and just don't even think about it. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says to actually approach the different doubts that we have or the different problems that we have and say, okay, I'm going to consider this. In the book of Isaiah, God says to uh, Isaiah, come let us reason together Though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Come, let us consider. Let's think. Let's reason together. It's okay to go and consider the different problems and questions that we all have. That's why we have the Q&A box. We should never be afraid of a question. There's no reason to be afraid of a question. It's okay to go and consider those things. But not only that, if you do have doubts, or you feel like you're in a difficult spot of like, man, it just seems like everything is really dark and shaky and... I don't, I don't, I don't know really where I stand or it's, it seems really dark. Know that you're not alone. What does it say? It says in hope, he believed against hope. What does that mean? (laughs) That means things were hopeless. That means things were dark. That means things were difficult. That means things were trying. That means there was tough stuff happening and he had to hope against hope. It was a hopeless situation. And so sometimes we can feel like, if I thought I would believe in God, and now all these hopeless situations will go away. Now all these difficult situations will go away, or all these doubts would go away. No, sometimes those things stay with us. Sometimes those things persist. And it is in those spaces of doubt, it's in those spaces of difficulty and darkness, where true faith can be born. Where true faith actually begins to reside is in the midst of darkness, doubt, and difficulty. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, again, the faith chapter. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It means in some senses it hasn't really arrived yet. In some senses it isn't actually here yet. It's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It's okay. You're not alone in having doubts or difficulties or trials that cause you to have to really exercise your faith because that's really where true faith is born. But where does faith come from? It begins in God. Faith begins in God. So if you're saying, how do I come to faith in God? Where does faith actually come from? It begins in God. It says in Ephesians chapter two that faith, um, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is something that God gives you and me. It isn't something that we build up in and of ourselves. So, like I said at the beginning, you had one job, right? If you were saved by grace through faith and you had one job and it was faith, that faith is given to us by God. That in and of itself is given by God and it is maintained by God too. In John chapter 10, um, it says that we are kept in his hand and His hands are in the Father's hands. So we have like two pairs of hands that are holding us to the very end. We're safe and secure. The faith is born in God. It begins in God and is maintained in God in us. But how is faith strengthened? Because if you're like me, I don't want to walk around in fear as much as I already do. I don't want to walk around in despair i want to walk around in faith i want to walk around believing in god of what he can do and who he is and so often my faith falters and my faith is shaky and i have to grow my faith how was abraham's faith strengthened here how was our faith strengthened look with me back in verse 20 No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. How did he grow strong in his faith? That's what I want to know. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. We grow strong in our faith as we give glory to God. What does it mean to give glory to God? It doesn't mean that he is lacking some kind of glory and we then give it to him, but instead... What it means to give glory to God is to recognize how glorious he really is. And what glory is, um, it's it's one of those religious words that we sometimes know and like we know intrinsically, but it's really hard to explain. Because like we'll see it in the newspaper, right? Like someone will make the touchdown pass and like he'll revel in his glory, right? And be like, yeah, football. All right, I get it. Yeah. What does it mean? I don't know, but it's glory of some kind. It's a, It's a recognition. It's a fame. It's a... It's it's an achievement that then qualifies the person in some way. It's an attribute of some kind. And when we look at God and we say, okay, what is God's glory? It's his weighty, it is his substantive character. It is the sum total of who he is as a person. So when we give him glory, what it means is we... Look at him, and we say, God, you are really gracious. It says that you are a shield. That means you take the blow so that way I don't have to. You take the arrow, you take the sword, you are a shield so that way I can be made whole. You are so gracious to me. You're. You're a tower," it says in the book of Psalms. "You are a strong tower in the presence of mine enemies. You are a safe place. You are a place that is protecting, that keeps us from falling, keeps us from ultimately falling away from Him, that He is a strong tower." It says that it says that God He is loving. That he genuinely loves you and me. Not out of obligation. He doesn't have to. But instead he wants to. And he genuinely loves you and me. It says that he is eternal. Which means that he, before there ever was, from everlasting to everlasting you are God, it says in the book of Psalms. So from everlasting time before to everlasting time after, God has been and always will be. And he is unchanging says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever in the book of Hebrews. That means as he once was, he always will be. So he's not going to change his loving and gracious attitude towards you and me tomorrow. But instead we can be confident of his gracious and lovingness forevermore. And when we start racking up all of the different amazing attributes of who God is that's what it means to give him glory, to ascribe him glory, it starts to build up my faith. Because I start to recognize, okay, even though this difficult thing might be happening to me, even though this trial might be happening to me, even though there's this evil inside of me that I can't seem to uproot, I believe in you because of who you are. And it starts to strengthen our faith when we give him glory and recognize the character of who he is. And the ultimate expression of that is worship. What worship is, is is saying back to God who he is. That he is glorious and gracious and mighty and good and kind and just all of those things. And it causes us to have our faith be built. And the ultimate expression of God's glory is found in the last couple verses and then we'll be done. In verse 24, it will be counted to us to believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The ultimate expression of God's glory is found in the cross. Where the just God poured out his wrath upon Jesus so that way you and I can be saved. And we talked about justification a little bit last week, but it comes up again and it comes up so much in the book of Romans. And what justification means is it puts us in a courtroom and in that courtroom, God looks down at us and he sees our debt that we're guilty. He sees that, yeah, he's he's messed up. Stephen, yeah, I've seen everything he's done and let me tell you, he's messed up. And that punishment, that rightful punishment that I should pay, Jesus comes and says, I will pay that in his stead. I'm going to pay the bail. I'm going to pay the time. So that way Stephen can go free and God looks at me and he says, not guilty. God looks at you if you believe in Jesus and says, not guilty. Do you know that? Really? We talked about this last week, but I'm going to say it again because I need it every week. God looks at you and says, not guilty. And so many of us walk around every day saying, I'm guilty. And God looks at you and says, not guilty. It would be unjust for God to punish you for your sin because Jesus paid it. No double jeopardy with God. You're not guilty. But not only that, the great hymn, The Rock of Ages, says the rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. And this is the amazing part. The double cure. Saved from wrath, not guilty, and made me pure. So God looks at you not as morally neutral, not just as not guilty, but as declared righteous. As righteous as God is, that is how righteous you and I are in God's sight. That is what he looks at when he sees you and me. He says, perfection, righteous, holy, saint. That is who you are when God looks at you. That is who I am. And what faith is, is looking at that and saying, I receive that for myself. That I'm not going to try and work my way out of this situation that I'm in and my guiltiness. Instead, I'm going to trust that through Jesus, I am saved. Trust that through Jesus, the debt actually has been paid. And when we're going around in guilt, what we need to do is not try and do more or be more righteous, but remember what Jesus has done and believe it again. Believe in him again. And when we walk around with our faith on shaky ground, we turn back to the cross and say, look at what he's done for me. Look at how he views me. Look at his character. Ascribe to him glory and worship and trust in him again. The good news of what Jesus has done, that is what we believe in. and his grace is so good and the faith that we have it might be shaky but thankfully he's not and it's not the substance of our faith that matters but it's the object of our faith that matters and so often and the picture that I use most of the time and you guys have probably heard it before but I'm going to say it again because I can't not think about it It's in the Emperor's New Groove when you see the bridges that he's walking across. And as he's walking through, you know, they just fall through it and the whole thing. Faith, the strength of our faith doesn't matter near as much as the object of our faith because someone like Cusco can have all kind of faith in the world that he's going to walk across that bridge. But it's, the quality of the bridge that matters, and he falls right through. But if it's the Golden State Bridge, (laughs) you can be all timid and nervous and barely sticking your foot out there, but it's going to hold you because it's the object of our faith that matters, not the strength of our faith that matters. And how the person that goes from going like this at the Golden State Bridge turns into confident walking across is you start looking at the bridge. <laughs> look down at the bottom and you see that it goes way down to the bottom and it's sturdy, that it's strong, that it's well built and you realize my, I'm secure. And how we grow in our faith, grow our faith, is we look at the security of the cross and say my life is hidden with Christ in God as it says in Colossians 3. So my heart for us is that we would truly have our faith be strengthened. And if you don't believe in Jesus, to trust in him for the first time. To say, I'm not relying on my own works. I know that I'm guilty before God and I'm going to believe in him. So that way I can be not only just declared not guilty and let that roll off finally, but then also declared righteous in his sight. And if you do believe in him, believe in him all the more. Because it changes everything. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to believe in you all the more. Pray that you'd help me to know your grace. Pray that you'd help us to believe in the truths of your word. That what you say really is true. That you are faithful to your promises. That what you say goes. And if you say that we are declared righteous, it is so. Just as you spoke the world into motion, that your very words. Have creative power. If you say to us that we are not guilty, I pray that you would help us to believe it. And I pray that if there's anyone who has not believed in you, that they would. And I pray for all of us who do believe in you, that you would cause our faith to be strengthened by looking at the cross and looking at the sure foundation that is the blood. So we commit ourselves to you. We thank you for your grace. And we pray this in your name. Amen.